0: So I distinctly remember the first time I cried in church. It was Christmas Eve. I was probably around seven years old. Uh, I was sitting in a pew at the Presbyterian church that my family attended. It was like a, a church complete with stained glass windows and candle and choir members and robes and sermons from a pastor that I generally found tedious and dull. Um, so for us children on Christmas Eve night, church was like the chore you had to get through before the magic happened, right? We put on our special Christmas finery we tried to sit quietly and not be too disruptive as we like doodled in the bulletins, looking ahead to the family dinner party that was coming and the climactic arrival of Santa Claus. But for some reason, this Christmas Eve, squirming in that pew in my fancy Christmas dress, something caught a hold of me. I don't remember what exactly the pastor was saying don't even remember that he was saying it in a particularly affecting way, but I do remember the connection that was made in my mind and my heart. As the pastor and others in the service retold the story of the first Christmas, my heart latched onto an important detail that like I had not yet understood. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a poor young girl a girl not much older than me. I was used to the Mary in the family nativity set, the one perched on my mom's piano. She didn't look like a young girl as she sat in porcelain, serenely staring at her newborn child. Neither did that Mary in the picture books that my Sunday school teachers would show us. Those Marys seemed mature, they seemed wise, and at least 25. But this news, that there was like a God of the whole universe who chose for this special role of caring for God's like one-time coming-to-be-with-people appearance, a poor, humble, young girl, that did something in me. I began to weep. As an adult, I can't help but wonder if my seven-year-old self was so moved because I understand now what she was going through at that time in a way that she couldn't put together. I understand now that she was navigating the complicated dynamics of trying to live as a happy, joyful child, finding her way in the world with plenty of advantages, right? plenty to celebrate, plenty of opportunities, allowing things to go well for her, but also being drawn into a deep family pain as a dark web of sexual abuse and incest that had been forming over generations caught her as its latest victim. She was a child who'd begun to know secrets, not the kind you whisper gleefully to your friends at overnights, but the kind you gravely understand you must never tell anyone ever, the kind that make your throat tighten and your palms clench to think about them. Perhaps this is why this young girl, myself, was so moved in that moment, as I felt in this deep way that something divine saw something remarkable in this young, unlikely girl, Mary. And if that was true, then I felt in my being that that same divine force saw something remarkable in me, too. All the grown-ups in my life who might love me, they didn't yet see it. They didn't know how much I needed to be truly seen and cared for and known. Not for how I could sit still. Not for how I could perform a very sweet solo in the church choir not for how I could keep a family secret, but for how I loved and hurt and hoped for something more. And so as this first spiritual revelation, I can remember, washed over me, I wept. First, a few little tears streaming down my cheeks. Before long, they were near sobs. The adults around me were pretty bewildered. This was not the kind of church where crying was like usually an expected or accepted thing. (laughs) Particularly not from a kid on Christmas Eve. But I didn't care. I really didn't care. Something deep was happening in me. And that was all that mattered. I share this story because it resonates with me as I think about this conversation we've been having around Advent in various ways at Haven over the last couple weeks, Advent's the season of preparation for the coming of Jesus, the time to set aside classically by the church that to lean into our need and longing for what the Messiah brought when he first came and what we still need him to bring in our time particularly in this year with so much happening that feels dark and heavy and divisive, with extremely high stakes and an election year coming in 2020 that's potentially going to be one of the most polarized any of us have lived through. I've invited us to engage this Advent as a season of preparation for breakthrough. How can we draw inspiration and instruction from those who've gone before us, from our sacred texts, as we look for the breakthrough that's needed in our time? Today, as we continue that conversation, I want to turn to this character that was at the heart of this moment, this first moment of spiritual revelation for me, and see what she specifically might have for us as we continue our season of Advent, preparing for what's on our horizon. What might this poor young girl from Nazareth have to teach us about preparing for breakthrough? The text we're gonna look at today comes from the chapter of Luke. Mary has just received the word from the angel that she would bear a child and she's responded that she's the Lord's servant. She accepts her role in this miraculous conception. And right after that happens, we're going to pick up the story. Okay? So we have it on handouts for those of you who would like to follow along that way. You're welcome to. You don't need to. There's some blanks you can fill in later if you want. There's pens in the back if you need those. Or you can read it um, on the screen as I read it aloud. For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. So here is where we see how Mary as well as her cousin Elizabeth, are engaging in their preparation for breakthrough. We're gonna spend some time on this song that takes up a good chunk of the text in a moment. But before we get to it, I just wanna acknowledge the setting of it. Okay, before Mary sings her song, she has to take a journey. What's the importance of that? I'd like to suggest that the answer to that is perhaps maybe our first lesson from Mary, on preparing for breakthrough, and that's this: that preparing for breakthrough means finding solidarity. Preparing for breakthrough means finding solidarity. It's, if you're not familiar with the geography of this part of the world, it's not clear to you when you read the text what this journey means that Mary's undergoing to visit Elizabeth. Okay, like I think for many years I just like casually assumed that this is a nearby relative. I'm just gonna like go pop over to Elizabeth's house and say like, what's up, right? No big deal, but this is not the case. I have a map to show you, okay? This shows the journey that Mary would have had to take. So Nazareth is up at the top in red, and all the way down towards the bottom is a city called Ein Karem, which scholars believe is the town that Elizabeth and Zechariah lived in, okay? Past Jerusalem. That is generously, um, you know, if, the, if she took the shortest route, which was also the most dangerous and the one that most um, Jewish people would have avoided through Samaria, that would be three days. Most likely she would have taken the four-day route at least, which is that was, goes around close to the Jordan River. Okay? So this is a four-day trek for a young teenage girl. Uh, it would have been extremely dangerous. All of those roads were regularly kind of patrolled by thieves who were looking for easy targets, which I would guess a young girl would be considered. So she's putting herself on the line. She's taking a journey, a dangerous excursion, likely her head and heart are full of, of wonder fear, bewilderment at the reality she's just finding herself in, right? I mean, this is life-changing, cataclysmic stuff that's just been revealed to her. I mean, for one thing, she's like one of the only human beings who's ever encountered an angel face-to-face, right? So that's crazy. And then um, if the an- what the angel said was true, the bizarre reality she was finding herself in was only going to get more... Bizarre. How could she possibly absorb it? How could she possibly believe it? Certainly, I don't think she could have done that alone. Right? She needed to be with it, in it, with someone. Someone who might have had a clue of what was happening to her. Someone who wouldn't project their own fears or judgments about her story onto her. Right? Think about her parents telling them her fiance, would they believe her story? Or would they more likely assume that if she was coming forward to tell them she was pregnant, there was something shameful to hide? Something that actually also was quite dangerous for a poor young woman, as she was in real risk of being subjected to stoning for adultery. No, she needed to find someone else And from what this angel had told her, her cousin all the way in Ein Karem was also expecting a miraculous baby. If anyone could relate maybe to what Mary was going through, if anyone could confirm it, affirm it, maybe it would be her. And so this longing for recognition and understanding and confirmation in the eyes of another human being compels young Mary, to undertake this dangerous journey all the way to Ein Karem and to knock on her cousin's door. And in that moment, something happens. As these two women, who are taking similarly unlikely and unconventional journeys, encounter one another, there is this moment of sacred recognition. I have this artist's representation of it I really find beautiful. This is the moment there is a spiritual energy released. It is so powerful that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps. And Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit. And though Mary is like barely pregnant, much, much too early to be showing. Elizabeth prophetically understands what has compelled her, her young teenage cousin, To come all this way to Nazareth, from Nazareth. They both recognize they are part of the same story. And in that recognition, they find solidarity. I don't think it's a coincidence that Mary's song comes after this moment. Okay, she doesn't sing it when the angel departs. She doesn't sing it on the four-day journey to Ayn Karam. She sings it when she finds solidarity when the thing burning in her heart is seen and understood and validated, when the intangible and spiritual is made real, touchable, as she puts her hands on her cousin's swollen belly and feels the miracle leaping inside, this solidarity gives space for revelation to be confirmed and voiced in powerful ways. About five years ago, an 11-year-old girl in Sweden was at school when her teacher shared a video talking about the effects of a warming planet. And while most of her classmates watched the video about the melting of the ice caps and the endangered polar bears, and they grimaced, and then they moved on and went outside to play, Greta Thunberg was overwhelmed, worse. The fact that her classmates didn't share her fear, her panic, her grief, made her feel completely isolated and alone. Greta became extremely depressed, unable to speak, even eat. She was hospitalized. Her growth was stunted by malnutrition. Later, she would be diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome a condition that affects how her mind processes information differently than neurotypical children. Greta describes it in this way, I see the world in black and white and I don't like compromising. If I were like everyone else, I would have continued on and not seen this crisis. But Greta did see the crisis of climate change and it motivated her to action First, it started with her family making commitments never to fly, becoming more and more sustainable in their practices. But that wasn't enough. Inspired by the American students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High, who in 2018 organized school strikes to protest gun violence in the United States, Greta decided to start a strike of her own. In August 2018, completely on her own, 15-year-old Greta Thunberg, told her parents she was gonna start striking from school once a week to pressure the Swedish government to meet the demands of the Paris Climate Agreement. Her parents were less than thrilled about her plan to miss school every week. She made a flyer to hand out to people describing what she was doing. It read, my name is Greta, I'm in ninth grade, and I am school striking for the climate. Since you adults don't give a damn about my future, I won't either. The first Friday of her protest, August 20th, 2018, she arrived completely alone in front of the Swedish parliament with no institutional backing, no structural support, no friends to keep her company. Just a girl in a hoodie with a sign. But Greta wasn't alone for long. Word began to spread. The second week, one stranger joined her. And Greta, who had spent years feeling so isolated, so alone in her concern, felt the power for the first time of solidarity. This was a big step from one to two, she says. This is not about me striking. This is now us striking from school. Each week the group grew one to two to eight to 40, And by the end of 2018, only a few months later, this is nuts, the Fridays for Future movement was born and tens of thousands of students across Europe were participating. A year later, by September 2019, climate strikes had spread across the globe. We have images from around the world right? from this year. Thousands and thousands of people, 250,000 in New York City, students joining this movement. Greta may have started alone, but she felt solidarity with those young activists in Florida, right? Solidarity with kids she'd never met. And then in that sense of solidarity, she made her own voice heard. And as she did so, many, many other young activists found solidarity with her. All of these young people looking for solidarity found one another, bringing power to their voices and hopefully change in their world. There's a power in solidarity. I think it is part of how we prepare for breakthrough, seeking company of others in it. The second lesson Mary, I think, offers us is this, that breakthrough is often identified by those most impacted by injustice. Greta cares because she's going to live longer than a lot of the people making decisions on her behalf right now, right? Breakthroughs often identified by those most impacted by injustice. After Elizabeth speaks her blessing, it's Mary's chance to open her mouth. And when she opens it, she gives voice to something powerful, something more stirring and visceral than the serene porcelain nativity doll on my parents' piano would allude to. This Mary is a singer-songwriter, a prophet, and a preacher, all in one. Her speech is the longest set of sentences uttered by a woman in the New Testament. So that's something. I would call that a sermon. But it's a sung one. It's a worshipful, prophetic song. Tradition has named Mary's song the Magnificat. You may have heard that. It's after the Latin word um, that begins the song in Latin, from which we get the word magnify, my soul magnifies the Lord. And this song tells us more about the young woman that God has chosen to bear the son of the divine than I think we see anywhere else in scripture. This, I think, is our real character lens on who this person is. So what does it tell us about her? What does her song tell us about her? I notice a couple of things. First, she knows her sacred texts. She knows her sacred texts. She knows her scripture. This song of hers isn't simply a spontaneous worship song. It's one that is rooted in the texts of her tradition. Her song particularly has strong echoes of Hannah. We're not gonna look at that now, but if you're curious, I have it on the sheet. You can look it up later from 1 Samuel. Hannah was a woman who found herself miraculously pregnant after struggling with infertility and pleading with God to grant her a child. And the song of praise that Hannah sang seems to be, have provided inspiration to Mary. She clearly is, is echoing it intentionally as she begins her own song. Her words also at, at points echo the psalmists, they echo the prophets, She's bringing all these traditions from throughout her sacred texts all together in one place, in one song. From her theological depth demonstrated, some scholars surmise that maybe it was Mary who taught her son Jesus the Torah, passed on to him her own love of the scripture. I love that idea. The second thing we see is that Mary kinesthetically understands that this breakthrough that is happening means an upheaval to all the human systems of injustice. This breakthrough that is happening means an upheaval to all the human systems of injustice. She gets that if she is the one that has been chosen to bear the Messiah, it means that the work of putting things right is truly coming to pass, that God is performing a great reversal. In Mary's day, income inequality was at an all-time high, and it was even more stark, if you can believe it, than in our time, even here in the Bay Area. In her day, the rich and powerful class was only a very minuscule percentage, two to 3% of the population the overwhelming, the 97% of people were devastatingly poor at a subsistence level, existence. And that was in no small part due to the oppressive taxation of those 2 to 3%. And of course, the greatest symbol in this time of this inequality was only about 10 miles away from where Mary stood as she sang her song. On a hill to the southeast, was a monument to a political leader who was so arrogant, so self-aggrandizing, so blatantly proud of his extreme wealth and privilege that he took all the money he extracted from those he oppressed to do some building projects. This leader knew how to build. His buildings were the most impressive, the tallest, the hugest. Buildings that were beyond what anyone had seen before. He was so proud of his building projects and the notoriety that they brought him, he decided to even name his biggest project where he was going to live after himself. The tower, I mean, the palace, was called the Herodium. It was the home of Herod. It was soon on, it was placed on a hill which you can still see, and the ruins are still there, if you go just a few miles from Jerusalem. But this is like what it looked like at that time. It was on this hill, the tallest hill in the area, so that everyone nearby would have to look at it. Everyone would be intimidated by its dominating shadow because Herod was a brutal dictator. He was famously paranoid. He was particularly so in his old age. The older he got, the more paranoid he became. He had his own children slaughtered when he thought they might pose a political threat. But Mary, Mary was not intimidated by this oppressive ruler and his cronies. She understands that breakthrough means that Herod's time is coming to an end. This, after all, is the God who, as she says, brings down the powerful from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. This destitute girl who has no doubt many hungry nights, understands that she is connected to one who has come to fill her and all who hunger with satisfying food, while those who have hoarded and squeezed the poor to fill their coffers of abundant stores, they will be sent away hungry. Justice is coming. Amen. And as it turns out, Bethlehem is even closer to the Herodium than Ein Kerem. It's right in the foothills, three miles from the Herodium. That's why the confused magi looking for Bethlehem assumed maybe it was the place on the hill they were looking for. It's right there. From Bethlehem, as you look on the eastern horizon, you see this view, the palace of the king. With that in mind, I like to imagine Mary giving birth, not serenely, modestly in this little pastoral stable, but grunting and screaming defiantly with hay in her hair and a glint of determination in her eyes as she fiercely brings into life the one who will topple the monument to injustice that lays right in front of her. This woman is a warrior for justice, amen? Now, I'm far, if you think, like, wait, where do we get this Mary? I gotta say, I am far from the first to understand Mary and her song in this way. It's for this reason that at times, her song has been seen as controversial, even dangerous. Frequently throughout history, those on the margins have heard the Magnificat, and they've heard it as their own word of hope in the face of tyranny and oppression. But to the powerful, this song has been threatening. That's why the song has been banned from being publicly read or sung in the church in different settings throughout history. As the British were trying to hang on to their rule over India, the Magnificat was banned. Later, as Guatemalans in the 1980s saw their own impoverished masses rising up, inspired and pirate by Mary's prophetic words, their government banned public recitations of these verses in Luke. And in the dirty war in Argentina in the late 70s and early 80s, as women who found their children disappearing, they're called Las Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, they put up posters in the Capitol Square with Mary's words, all across them, which made the junta military leadership in Argentina also ban the song. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's the German theologian and pastor that resisted the Nazi regime in his day and, and died in a death camp because of it, took great inspiration from Mary's song. In Advent of 1933, he preached this. The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary who we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God, and the powerlessness of humankind. But you don't have to live in an oppressive dictatorial regime to have experienced the erasure of Mary's song. Many white evangelical churches have rarely preached it or sung it in their services. If they do cover the song at all, either in preaching or through musically, it's usually just the first couple of lines The part where she says my soul magnifies the lord my spirit rejoices in god but not the part that gets political right perhaps these white evangelicals don't read or sing the second half of her song because it's too threatening to the privilege of many in their churches perhaps it's too threatening to the capitalist structures that fund those churches or Perhaps her gritty, revolutionary spirit doesn't comport with how they believe young women are to compose themselves in modesty and willingness not to lead but to follow their brothers. Whatever the reason, the Mary that's been embraced by much of mainstream Christianity does not reflect this vital, dynamic part of her character or her wisdom. Even the popular contemporary carol, Mary, did you know? Made especially popular by the Pentatonix, so they have a beautiful version. But this carol revolves around this simplified understanding of the mother of Jesus. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Did you know he would save our sons and daughters? The answer is clearly, right? Yeah, she got it. But the whole song implies that she was clueless, right? That she certainly couldn't have known. It doesn't give her enough credit. Even though I don't believe that the church I was attending at age seven told the complete story of Mary either, I think this liberating side of her was somehow what my young heart, maybe assisted by what I'd eventually call the Holy Spirit, was captivated by that first time that I cried in church. It is that kind of clarion call to breakthrough that she sings. And I think that's a song we need to hear today. In our own time, as we recognize the toxicity, the darkness, the injustice in our day, as we look to the election year to come and the, the new decade that's dawning with it, I wonder if Mary's song might not be an important reminder for us. If breakthrough that topples unjust systems is to come in our time, if that's gonna happen, it likely won't be identified by the ones in power. If breakthrough that topples unjust systems is to come, it's not gonna be identified by the people in power. It won't be seen by the rich or the politically connected. It's likely gonna come from unlikely sources who can call out with those with more advantage, are unable or unwilling to see. So Mary will likely not be a candidate for president this year. She won't be on the ballot, right? The prophetic voices on the margins that we need to hear from will probably not be the people commanding attention on cable news. But as we get more involved in these campaigns to come, perhaps those of us who are privileged need to be on the lookout for where are they, the prophetic voices in our time? And who on our ballots might be paying attention to? Who that we march for and with? Which of our leaders are also looking for and listening to voices from the margins, recognizing that their concerns are all of our concerns and that they just might be the bearers of the breakthrough all of us need. Can we, like Elizabeth, attend to the prophetic among us? Can we find leaders who are committed to the same? Who, like Mary's cousin, when encountering the presence of today's clarion call, will honor it, Will follow it to even when it appears in an unlikely package, like a poor young virgin or a small Swedish climate striker. This is what I'm going to be praying for and looking to discern as the year plays out. And that brings me finally to the last lesson I see in Mary. And that's this she rejoices, y'all. And I think that's important. I think she reminds us that joy in the midst of oppression can be a subversive act of resistance. Joy in the midst of oppression can be a subversive act of resistance. Both Mary and Elizabeth here know their lot is not made miraculously easy with their present change of circumstances. There's no child tax credit coming their way, right? There's no paid family leave. They have precarious circumstances. Elizabeth is an elderly woman married to an elderly man. They have good reason to be concerned they're not going to be around long for this young child. Mary is a poor unwed mother in a patriarchal culture carrying a baby that threatens the powerful. And indeed, she would find herself not too long later having to flee that, that tyrant on the mountain because her child was threatening to him. And yet these women living through dark and dangerous times rejoice because evil has not won. It will not steal their joy. Poverty has not won. It will not steal their joy. Herod has not won. He does not get to steal their joy, even when he tweets. Right? He does not get to steal their joy. These women have experienced genuine good. They have encountered the something divine in the universe that saw something remarkable in each of them and has moved with them and through them and for them and for so many others. And so even in the midst of darkness, they feel deep abiding joy, joy that resists. Author and theologian Henry Nouwen says this, Joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death can take that love away. This is what Elizabeth and Mary rejoiced in, in Ein Karam all those centuries ago. This, I think, is the joy I tasted for the first time as a seven-year-old on Christmas Eve. And this is the joy I believe all of us are invited to experience and live into this year to come and beyond. Amen.